Let's join our hearts together again and meet me at the throne of grace as we make that song we just sang our prayer together. Father, it's a bold, it's a specific request. We ask that you would do precisely as we've just sung, that you would show us Christ. The real one. The one who has dwelled with you from eternity. Your word describes as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Show us the real Jesus, the one that you see, the one that you sent, the one that suffered outside of Jerusalem for our sins and not his own, the one who was buried dead in a borrowed tomb, and the one that you raised in power and glory as the king of the universe and seated him on heaven's throne. Show us the real Jesus, the one who now reigns and will soon return to rescue His people and bring them to you forever. As we go into the Holy of Holies of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, we pray that You would protect us from being incinerated by the incalculable weight of glory that is there. pray that You would cover us in the asbestos righteousness of the Lord Jesus and that You would thrill us all over again with the truth of the gospel. I pray for people who feel so far from you that they can't be found. That you would go chase them down in your love. I pray for those who feel so overly familiar with you that they can't remember what it was like to have their heart warmed by the fire of the love of God in Christ that today you would meet them in mercy. I pray for all of us there'd be a real, substantial step forward in likeness to Jesus as a result of the power of your word. Come, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us, just in recent weeks, had the joy uh, leading up to and on Christmas Day of watching our children or grandchildren open gifts at Christmas and Maybe for weeks or uh, just days prior, those gifts set wrapped and labeled with the kids' names on them. And during that time, the kids probably wondered and maybe even explored a little bit to try to figure out what was beneath the wrapping. And in the midst of their wonder, they finally on Christmas morning or whenever your time came, at long last, they stopped their guessing and were permitted to tear into the wrapping with unrestrained joy to expose the content. And it's precisely that moment, the moment of of raw, undiluted, joy-filled discovery that we, parents and grandparents and friends, try to capture. That's the moment, not the days and weeks before, when we bring out our camera or our video and try to capture that, that moment, that precise moment. Because we all instinctively know, we're hardwired to know, God made us to 
intuitively know that the glory of a gift is not in its being concealed. Rather, the glory of the gift, the point of the gift, is experienced when it's brought to fruition in its being opened and embraced. And it's that moment that all of us probably have record of from just a few weeks ago. On the other hand, has there ever been any child, you when you were a child, or the children who are among us today, or any children who've previously lived on any corner of the planet, has there ever been a child in the history of the world that's woken up on Christmas morning and said, you know, I'd rather not open those gifts today? Or for that moment, for that matter, has there ever been a kid who said, yeah, you can take it or leave it, I'd just rather not open them at all? Well, if they did... It would not only cause us to have questions about the child, because innately we want the gift, just like as Corey was leading the catechism, we all wanted to know what was behind his back. Innately, we want the gift. Not only, though, would it cause us to have questions about the child, such a response would cause grief for the gift giver, for the parent, because the whole system of gifts and presents is predicated on the fact that the giver intends for the receiver to experience the delight of enjoying the gift. The gift opener never declines the opportunity to unwrap the gift. In fact, we have to hold children back from opening it too early and some are slick enough to do it without our knowing. But once the time comes to unwrap the present, the gift opener's joy is uncontainable and is surpassed only by the joy of the giver. The irrepressible expressions of delight and gladness and pleasure that rush to the faces of our children in unrestrained and uncontrollable eruptions of gladness are surpassed only by the gladness of the giver of the gift. It is more blessed to give than receive. In fact, the reason that As I mentioned earlier that we parents and grandparents seek to photograph and video those precise moments of jubilee on the faces of our children as they discover what's inside the wrapping is because the giver of the gift experiences a mutual delight when the gift is known and enjoyed. And God Almighty showed up in this place long before you ever arrived because He has something to give you. And out of His great love, He's eager to take delight in you enjoying with Him the inexpressible wonder of the gift. This is how the Gospel works. My little illustration, maybe it resonates with you or maybe it doesn't, but this is how the Gospel works. As we receive God's gift of salvation, yes, we experience joy. Substantial, not superficial. We're not talking about giddy. We're not talking about trite. We're talking about deep abiding, unchangeable joy. And as we experience joy in Jesus, those who are saved know this, God Himself, as a good Father, takes great delight in us receiving this gift. This is why Grace Church says it this way, we exist for one reason, one only, 
to glorify God. But how will we do that? By treasuring His Son. Receiving the gift of His Son. Valuing His Son. And spreading that joy to the edges of the earth. So for the next four weeks, beginning today, we want to tenaciously tear into the package of the gift of the gospel. Not hesitantly, not indifferently. We certainly don't want to leave that gift wrapped someplace. We don't want to leave it wrapped with our name on it. We want to rip open the gospel and embrace the great prize that is within it. In so doing, our own joy will be elevated like a child on Christmas morning, but also our God will be glorified. He will take delight. So the first two sermons of this year, that's the last two weeks before today, we focused on the work of the gospel. Namely, how does God save a soul? How does it happen? Well, I commend the audio of those two sermons to you for re-listening sometime soon. But starting today, the next four sermons will focus on the why. What's inside that gift? Not how does God save a soul, but why does He do it? So today we'll look at the inexpressible wonder of Jesus. That's the glory of the gospel. Lord willing, next Sunday we'll look at the unrivaled preeminence of Jesus. That's the great gift of the gospel. Lord willing, the Sunday after that we'll look at the incalculable fullness of Jesus. That's the goal of the gospel. And then fourth and finally, in mid-February, we'll look at the inestimable value of Jesus. That's the gain of the gospel. Well, for today's purpose, we'll draw our attention down into one verse in Galatians chapter 2. I invite you to join me there in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And unwrap this gift. Galatians 2.20. I'll read from the New American Standard Translation. Hear the word of the living God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. One more time. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Once again, let's ask for God's great blessing. Father, we ask You to dispatch the Holy Spirit to move among us freely and to expose to us the inexpressible wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ to our soul. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we can't agree on how God saves a soul then we certainly won't be able to agree on why He saves a soul. So as I mentioned, the previous two sermons were focusing on how. There's so much rank confusion today on how God saves a soul, but there is one and only one way that God saves a soul. That's through the work of Jesus of Nazareth to suffer for our sins, not His own, taking the guilt that we had incurred against God Dying to satisfy, propitiate the wrath of God, the justice of God, the honor of God, so that God would be able to remain God and save somebody as sinful as us because Jesus is such an adequate 
sacrifice. But that's half of it. Not only does Jesus take our guilt, not his own, and go into the presence of the Father and give his own blood as the sacrifice for our sins as an adequate redeemer, that's a glorious half. But the other half is, if you will turn from your sins, And put all your trust in Him alone. Believing not only that He died for your sins as an adequate sacrifice, but He also rose victoriously as proof positive that God accepted His sacrifice. The other half of the good news is God will credit to you all the righteousness of Jesus so that in His presence, you are as qualified to be His son and His daughter as Jesus is. That's how God saves the soul. If we can't agree on that, then we cannot agree on why He saves the soul. But He never does the work of salvation without doing it for this purpose. We could say it this way. Everybody God saves, He saves for a reason. And if you don't want the reason that He saves, then you do not want the work by which He saves. He doesn't save you so that you can decide what the reason is. He saves you because he's already decided what the reason is. You could sum up our previous two-week sermons by looking at Galatians 2, verse 16, where Paul says three times one thing and three times another thing in one short verse. He says in Galatians 2, 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ And not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law. No flesh will be justified. So do you see it? Three times he says. Justification. And we're talking about being made right before God. In a way that God says. Yes you are right. That's justification. Being made right before God. Justification does not happen. He says three times in that one verse. By works of the law. By self effort. And he also says three times. How it does happen. Faith in Christ Jesus. It's how God saves a soul. Meaning we must look away from ourselves. We must look away from what we can do. Even what we have done. And we must look to Christ and Christ alone and what He has done as the basis of our justification before God. That's how God saves a soul. But why? That's our verse. That's the next four sermons. What is God's gift to us in the gospel? Well, I am trying to entice you to not look at the package of the gospel sitting labeled with your name on it. I'm trying to entice you for your own joy and for God the Father's delight for you to tenaciously tear into the gift of the gospel and find out what is inside. We know that after Paul preached the gospel in Galatia, The book of Galatians, the region of Galatia, southern Asia, modern day Turkey, that area. We know that after he preached the gospel there, churches were established with people who believed the true gospel. They were true converts, they were truly seeking the Lord Jesus Christ, but soon after Paul left, we can tell from the pages of Galatians that there were those who came through behind him, other missionaries. And they began confusing these Galatian Christians with their teaching. They were known as Judaizers. Which is a big word to mean that they they propagated the system of Judaism as a prerequisite to Christianity. Simply put, you must become a Jew 
in order to become a Christian. Or another way to put it, you must keep the law of God in order to have the favor of God. That's why Galatians 2.16, which we read, repeats three times, that's not how God saves a soul. Not by works of the law, not by works of the law, and if you didn't hear me, not by works of the law. How does he do it? Faith in Christ Jesus, faith in Christ Jesus, faith in Christ Jesus. Paul was incensed about this. No, if you've been moved to rage lately. But Paul was enraged by this. Nowhere in the whole Bible does the Apostle Paul use such strong language to denounce what these people were teaching. This isn't a little uh uh-oh. He's enraged. He's incensed. He's moved to holy indignation and anger. He calls it in Galatians 1.16, quote, a different gospel. He says in Galatians 1.7, they are, quote, distorting the gospel. He says in 1.8, there is no other gospel. And Paul shows how serious this issue is. And those who preach and teach anything else, he says in 1.9, quote, they are to be accursed, anathema, condemned. Paul's saying that this is a matter of heaven and hell. If you tweak the gospel even a little bit, you totally abandon it. If you add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ as necessary for your justification before a holy God, then you subtract from the gospel all of its power to save you. Friends, we must get this right. God saves sinners on the basis of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in our place. God imputes to Christ Jesus our sin who suffered for it on the cross. Those who believe in Him who died and rose again on their behalf, God imputes to them on the basis of faith alone, not by the works of the law, He imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Meaning, we get the forgiveness of all of our sins, past, present, and future. This is astonishing. But not only do we get the forgiveness of sins, the removal of the negative, we get positively added to us by God's declaration, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know if you have opened that gift? All I've said so far is there's a gift for you. Is it still wrapped with your name on it? Why does He do it? Why does He save and save this way? How do we know if that gift is still sitting wrapped waiting to be enjoyed? Well, I'm so glad you asked. We'll take Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 in four parts to see it as God says it. There are four parts to this verse. The first is this. I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. This is our first point. I had the privilege as a 20-year-old to go to Israel. And I was a junior in college. And this was two years after I was transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Two years after my salvation. Maybe Ben and Mandy Gaiman, who went to Israel last fall, had a similar experience as I had when they were in Jerusalem. But as a 20-year-old, I stood there just outside the city of Jerusalem, and uh, there was a a prepared place with a little metal rail banner, banister, 
And uh, I stood there holding that, looking at Golgotha, the mountain where Jesus was crucified. And as I stood there, you know, there's a lot of hustle and bustle around places like that. Um, But I quoted to myself Galatians 2.20. A. I have been crucified with Christ. I was looking at the place of my own death. Did you notice that the verse does not say that Jesus was crucified? Now, it definitely implies that, and there's a way in which you can just read the words and say, yes, it does say that, but that's not the focus of the verb. It does not say Jesus was crucified. Now, of course, that is clearly implied, but the focus of the verb is another one has been crucified. It's not Christ, but it's Paul. And every Christian can accurately personalize this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. As I looked on that hill upon which Jesus died, and I had a deeply profound experience that I can't fully explain to you, but you don't have to travel to Jerusalem to be able to experience that. You can experience that right here and right now. In fact, Paul wasn't there the day he was, that Jesus was crucified, and he says that he was crucified with Jesus. So you don't have to be there either geographically, but you do have to go there truly, spiritually, by faith. I knew that although I was standing in the midst of so many tourists and locals, it was the year 1997, that I was also looking at a place that I died 2,000 years prior. I was looking at the scene of my own death, Is this not what the verse teaches us? I have been crucified with Christ. When He died, those for whom He died, died also. His death was the occasion of my death. Now this is not referencing Paul's physical death. It's not a reference to uh, Paul's, to to the death of Paul's physical body. It's a reference to Paul's death to all of his previous efforts to be justified in God's sight apart from the death of Jesus. Let me say it again. It's a reference to Paul's death to all of his prior efforts to be justified in the sight of God apart from the death of Jesus. I love you enough to say to you, you're going to stand before Him And you do want to be justified in His presence. And Paul is telling us how it happens. He's going to go on to tell us why it happens. This is a statement. I have been crucified with Christ. It is a statement of Paul dying specifically to the law. Dying to all self-effort in his attempts to be justified before a holy God apart from Christ alone. Martin Luther over 500 years ago says Paul does not here speak of crucifying the flesh. But he speaks of a higher crucifixion wherein sin, the devil, and death are crucified in Christ and in Him. Luther goes on to say, by my faith in Christ, I am crucified with Christ. I do not mean to create an impression as though I did not live before this. But in reality, I now really live. Now that I have been delivered from the law, delivered from sin, delivered from death and Satan, Now I live. Galatians 2.19 explains clearly that this is what Paul's talking about in 2.20. He says, quote, I died to the law. That's the crucifixion. Why did he die to the law? 
so that I might live to God. And the verse right after it says it even more plainly. Galatians 2.21 If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Your translation may say, in vain. If I can get righteous, if I can become justified in the presence of a holy God through the law, then there was no reason for Jesus to die. Here's another way to put it. If you can be saved any other way than Jesus Christ suffering for your sins under the wrath of God so that you may be forgiven and Jesus Christ rising from the dead so that you may be counted righteous. If there's any other way for you to be justified in God's sight, then God is the cosmic fool of all fools. Why would He have sent His Son? Why would He have not kept Jesus holy and unharmed in heaven instead of sending Him to the sin-torn world to suffer such an ignominious death at the hands of sinners if you could be saved another way? That's Galatians 2.21. If righteousness comes any other way, then Jesus died needlessly. What's harder than not working for your salvation? Pardon me. What's harder than working for your salvation? Not through the law. What is harder than working, trying to earn your salvation? The answer is not, not working. That's not the answer. What's harder than working for your salvation? It's not not working. We got a lot of people today who would like to not work. That's not the answer. The answer is dying. Being crucified. Flying. Away from your own effort. Now let's say God had written us a book. Let's just suppose He'd done that. And in His book, He told us how that we could be counted righteous in His sight or justified. And let's just imagine that in the book that God wrote to us, this is what He said. You have to flap your arms as hard as you can until you fly to the moon. Or you have to dig with the nubs of your fingers until you get to the core of the earth. I stand before you today as a man who would not be here. I would be flapping my arms. I would be digging to the middle of the earth. There's no link too great to go. And one day, everybody will agree with this to be right with God. The hardest thing to do is not trying to earn your salvation, we would, tr we would die trying. You can't flap your arms to the moon and you can't dig to the middle of the earth. And God didn't say that. He said, die. Be crucified. Do nothing. Be passive. To think that you could save yourself by do-gooding or your own law-keeping would mean that Jesus Christ died in vain. Luther said, it's an intolerable and horrible blasphemy to think up some work by which you may presume to placate God when you see that He cannot be placated except by this immense, infinite price, the death and the blood of the Son of God, one drop of which is more precious than all creation. That's why the hymn writers say, foul I to the fountain fly. I'm not trying to earn my salvation. So friends, have you come to that place of union with Christ Jesus in His death? Do you know that fellowship of Jesus in His sufferings? In His death? 
If not, then you cannot know the fellowship of Jesus and His resurrection power. Have you rested on Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, as your scapegoat? Have you taken the place of that Old Testament priest and, symbolically as it were, gathered up all your sins and placed them as a priest on the head of the crucified Lord of glory, transferring all your guilt to the Lord Jesus Christ, past, present, and future, unto Him so that He may run off with them in His death as far as the east is from the west. When you think about your testimony, Christian, don't start with what happened to you when you were 12 or 25, or 65, you got to go way further back than that to a hill outside of Jerusalem where Jesus Christ was crucified in your place for your sins and where you too were crucified with Him. Before we move on from this little phrase, I have been crucified with Christ, let your eyes follow on that four-letter word, with. With Christ. It'd make no difference on earth or in heaven if you were crucified without Him. What good would it do for you to die for your sins? It'd make no difference if you were one of the criminals on his right hand or on his left hand. As far as salvation is concerned, it would make no difference at all if you were crucified 10 million times over. You cannot save yourself, which is why hell is forever. You must get on the cross with him. One criminal beside Jesus perished in his sins, although he was so close. That he might have been able to reach out and touch him before they put the spike through his wrist to his own cross. You will not be saved if you're crucified beside him. You must die with him to every other effort to save yourself. Have you joined the criminal on the other side of the Lord Jesus and as it were, climbed by faith off of his own cross onto the cross of Jesus of Nazareth to die with him as his only hope for justification before God? This is what the Apostle is saying. In his death, I believe that Jesus Christ satisfied all of God's demands in the law. All of them. And instead of relying on my own power, O God, or anybody else's power to satisfy your holy demands which are right and righteous, I rely on Christ's death alone to meet the demands that you require for the justification for a sinner. He is my only hope. I'm dead to every other option. I have been crucified. By faith, I have died with Jesus. He is the ground of my hope for rightness before a righteous God. John Calvin said it so well. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separate from Him, all that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. I have been crucified with Christ. All the blessings in the heavenly places are in Christ. That leads us to number two. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The most dangerous word in the whole world in any language is one letter long. I. You see Paul here saying, I no longer live. You cannot have you and Jesus fitting into the same life. When he takes up residence, he takes over. You see what Paul is saying? It is no longer I who live. Everything that was opposed to God in me is dead. I reckon to be dead. To be crucified. So 
why Clyde Cranford said to me over and over again, the great rival to God in your life is not Satan. The great rival to God in your life is self. Paul experienced, he's saying to us, the cosmic shift of what the Bible talks about as regeneration. What he's saying is he has new life with Christ. The old man that was contrary to God, I, self. The old man that was contrary to God and all of God's law, all of his old effort to seek salvation through law keeping and law abiding and religious zeal is now to Paul a putrid stench. Instead of trying to fit through the narrow door of heaven, holding all of his good works to show God why God should like him, he abandons all of his self-righteousness. And he clings to Jesus alone. He no longer holds on to what he says in this next chapter. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which was in the law, blameless. He's not holding that anymore. He's clinging by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't bank on any of his own effort to commend himself favorably to God. I no longer live. That's not where he stops, praise God. But Christ lives in me. Instead of being an empty corpse, what real salvation is, is God taking self out through crucifixion. Death to self and filling you with the life of God so that the old writers would say things like, salvation is basically this, the life of God in the soul of a man. That's what Paul's saying. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I want to ask you a question. Who owns you? Who owns you? All of you. This is what Paul's talking about. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is the what of the gospel. That's the last two weeks. The life of Christ in you is the why of the gospel. God wants you to tenaciously tear open this gift and to embrace what this little phrase means. Christ lives in me. With this phrase, we're unwrapping, we're receiving the great gift of the justifying power of the gospel. As we peer into the gift of the gospel, we see what it contains. As we open it, our spiritual faces should light up with childlike and inexpressible joy, full of glory. Here's the offer of the gospel. When God says, I will make you mine, I will forgive your sin, I will call you a Christian, I will promise you a place in heaven, all those are tertiary, secondary, to the main thing He offers you, and that is this. Christ within. The offer of the Gospel could be summarized in the first two phrases of this verse. First, you die with Jesus. Meaning you abandon every other possible way to be justified before a holy God. I don't know how to say it more plainly. And I say it emphatically because it moves me to grief and tears. The more I hear, I'm a good person, I go to church, I've been baptized, I read my Bible, I don't hurt people, I'm nice. All of that is going to perish with unforgiven sinners in hell forever because it is trampling underfoot the Son of God who came to justify you. So the offer of the Gospel in this verse in the first two phrases can be summarized this way. You die with Jesus. 
You're crucified with him. You abandon every other possible way to be saved, to be right before God. And number two, Christ himself gets to inhabit all of you. All of your life belongs to all of Christ. No reservations. You give him everything. Christ within. Those are the terms of justification. God will not amend them. But not only are those God's terms, it's also the greatest possible gift. This is the best possible treasure. The reason he wrapped the gospel with your name on it is so that you would open it and be thrilled with the gift that he gives you. The gospel contains the extraordinarily good news that Jesus Christ, who didn't need you or me, will gladly take up residence in your life. That's the gift. The only people who have a biblically rooted hope that they will be in glory. Let me say it less preachy. The only people who will go to heaven are not people who have Christ beside them or near them. Not people who who know that Christ is in other people who are near to them. Or in the church that they attend. The only people who have a rock solid biblical hope of glory are Colossians 1.27 people. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ lives in me. That's what Paul's saying. That's what our verse is teaching us. The old me is dead. I have died. I'm deceased. I'm gone. My funeral has happened. Now the life that I possess is not my own. I've been bought with the price of Christ's blood and His risen life is within me. That's why we sing hymns around here. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. Luther said it this way. Faith connects you so intimately with Christ that He and you become, as it were, one person. Such as you may boldly say, I am now one with Christ. Therefore, Christ's righteousness, His victory, and His life are mine. And on the other hand, Christ may say, I am that big sinner. His sins and His death are mine because He joined me and I am joined to Him. Friends, what an exchange. He gets all our guilt, all our crime, all our sin, all our offense, all our wretchedness against a holy God. And we get all His love, righteousness, and forgiveness. Jesus takes all that is offensive to God in you. He dies in your stead. Jesus takes all that is honoring to God in Him and He applies it upon your head. Oh, what love is this? Friends, do you know the crucified life? Do you know the indwelling Christ Do you know what it's like to forsake every other hope that God would ever save you except for Christ alone? Do you know what it's like, as it were, to jump off of a thousand foot cliff into the arms of Jesus and say, if you will not save me, I will never be saved because you are my only hope. That's crucified with Christ. And do you know the Christ life? The Lord Jesus Christ, on the basis of faith in Him alone, taking up residence in your life, old you dead, now Christ within. Paul says this is the whole point of why he's ministering to the Galatians. I'll let him say it. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. I am again in labor with you until, this is why I'm ministering to you, this is why I'm praying for you, this is why I'm writing to you, until Christ is formed in you. It's the great gift of the Gospel. It's the inexpressible wonder of the Gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ taking up residence in an unworthy sinner justified by the work of Jesus alone for the glory of God forever.
Well, third, not only crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But notice this. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So on the one hand, Paul says, I no longer live. And on the other hand, he says, the life I now live. So which is it? I know to unbelievers, this sounds like a total paradox, antinomy. It just cannot fit, but it fits precisely. This is the Christian life. The old man is dead and the new man lives. Those who are in Christ, Paul says in another place, are a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. So he can say, I no longer live. And then in this phrase, he can say, the life which I now live. It's not his life anymore. It's Christ's life in him. Jeffrey Wilson said, Paul's meaning is not that his own personality has ceased to exist, but that he has been so transformed by Christ living in him that he no longer recognized his former self. Having experienced so great a deliverance from legalism, Paul could never travel that road again. And the whole reason he's writing to the Galatians is because these people had come and said, ah, oh, you need Jesus plus. Jesus plus Judaism. Gospel plus. And the whole reason Paul writes to them is he says, I can't go back there. And he says, you're on the brink of a fatal relapse. You must learn this, Galatians, that if you submit to a regime of the law, good behavior to earn points with Jesus, then it will sever your union with Christ, who is the sole source of true spiritual life. You can say, I no longer live. And you can say, the life I now live. It's all Christ. Paul said to the Colossians something so similar. You have died. Now what do you think the next phrase is? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Both and. You have died and your life. This is post-conversion. This is the power of regeneration. This is God causing somebody to be raised from spiritual death, united to Christ to have spiritual life with God forever. It's going to sound to carnal men again like a paradox. But the true Christian life is simply this. The life I now live, I no longer live. It's His life. I've given myself, body, soul, and mind to the Lord Jesus. All of me, Jesus. You can have all of me. The whole thing is yours, Lord. I'm not going to tell you what you should do with what you have purchased. 1 Corinthians 6 says in verse 19, you were bought with the, Christ, the price of Christ's blood, therefore glorify God in your body. Romans 6 says you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. If you're a slave to sin, you must obey that hard taskmaster. If you're a slave to righteousness, you must obey God Almighty. Everybody's a slave. The only question is, who owns you? But do you know that this phrase says, the life which I now live in the flesh, it, it tells us not only that, that that is the reality for Christians, but it also tells us how. Do you see it? The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see that? This is what I was talking about earlier. God said, fly to the moon and I'll save you. Or dig to the center of the earth and I'll save you. It's not what he said. He didn't say work for it. He said believe. Faith. Trust. Faith is not a work. No man will ever stand before God and say something like this. I prayed my prayer for Jesus to save me. Now you must let me in your heaven. 
Nobody gets God's arm behind his back by faith. Trusting God is not a work. Faith, biblically, is the empty-handed reception of all that God is for you in Christ. Faith is receiving, not giving. And Paul says right here, the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I am receiving, I am not giving. I'm not earning anything from God, I'm not putting Him in my debt. I am trusting Jesus Christ alone and the life that He gives me for favor with God. By faith in the Son of God. Simple, pure devotion to Jesus. Dependence upon another. Trusting one's entire self to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is much harder than working. Again, it requires dying. He's not speaking of justification in this phrase. He's speaking of sanctification. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But the life that I now live, it's all for Christ. This is after somebody becomes a Christian. What the Bible talks about as sanctification. The process of growing in conformity and likeness to the Lord Jesus. The process of maturing in your faith. This is how it happens. Paul's talking about the effect of justification. If you're made right with God and you don't want to live for Jesus, newsflash, you were never made right with God. This is the effect of justification. You're justified by faith in Christ alone apart from works of the law and you're sanctified much the same by faith in the Son of God. Jesus is the object of our faith in justification. So Some people say, man, I just don't have enough faith. It's not the amount of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. You can have faith as small as a mustard seed and put it in the right object, the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. You can have faith the size of this building and put it into the wrong object and perish in hell. It's not the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith that saves. Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior. Same in sanctification. Living by faith in the Son of God. If there's no looking to Jesus by faith in your life now to live in a way that pleases God, then you've never looked to Jesus prior to save you. Galatians is such a powerful expose on this truth. Paul says in chapter 1, am I seeking to please men or am I trying to please God? If I were still trying to please men, here it is, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He's everything to me. This is the Christian life. The old writers would say the way in is the way up. How do you get justified before God? That's the same way you get sanctified. Justification is by faith in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.6 says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Continue to walk. Well, how did you receive Him? By faith. How do you continue to walk in Him? By faith. That's why the Bible constantly says to us, we walk by faith and not by sight. 1 Corinthians 5. We have a whole, whole chapter in the book of Hebrews of what it looks like to live by faith in the Lord Jesus. Listen to the testimony of Moses. Hebrews 11. When Moses had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, 
And he endured by seeing him who is unseen. Faith in Christ. Old writers talk this way in their songs and hymns. Simply trusting thee, Lord Jesus, I behold thee as thou art. And thy love, so pure, so changeless, satisfies my heart. Satisfies its deepest longings. Meets, supplies its every need. Compasseth me round with blessings. Thine is love indeed. Well, fourth and finally, look where this verse ends. It would be too good to believe unless God Himself had said it. Not only are we crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but the life we now live in Him, we live by faith in Him. The verse ends this way. The Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. The Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Listen carefully. We are told here what Christ did. He gave Himself up for me. But you can see we're also clearly told why He did it. Moved by no other motive than love. Notice the personalization of this phrase. It's not the silly man-centeredness that we're surrounded by today where people make the gospel flip on its head and all about themselves. We've just dealt for the whole sermon with the fact that the Christian life is a Christ-saturated life. It is a Christ-centered life. It is a Christ-focused life. We're not talking about silly me-centeredness in the little two-word, uh, two-letter word me in this phrase. What we're dealing with here, and without any hesitation, is this glorious personalization of the love of God for us in Christ. Now I want you to think about who wrote this little phrase that you see. The Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. This is a man who the Bible tells us was a violent aggressor against the way, Jesus. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the church. He was an entrenched heretic who taught others to disavow the truth of Scripture as it is truly revealed. He sought to stamp out Christianity and drag believing people away from their families to imprison or kill them. This is the man who was known in the known world as a hater of Christ and anybody associated with Him. This man would call himself in another book, quote, the chief of sinners. This is the man that's saying, Jesus Christ loved me and gave Himself up for me, can you say that? You might say, Jordan, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea where I've been. You're not worse than the Apostle Paul. You're not worse than me. And he can say, he loved me. 10,000 times, yes. What an affront it is to God. The Bible commands us things like don't quench the Holy Spirit, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Well, if you don't want to do that, you need to know how it happens. It's the same way that a parent who wraps a present and puts a child's name on it is eager for them to open and to enjoy it. The same way you grieve the Holy Spirit is for the child to come down on Christmas morning and say, ah, you know, on second thought, no thank you. You want to grieve the Holy Spirit? I trust you don't. I'll tell you how you can do it. You can spurn the love of God for you in Christ. You can say, you didn't do enough for me. It wasn't adequate for me. You dealt me too bad a hand or 
whatever excuse you want to make. You didn't love me enough. Friends, there's no greater love possible than the needless, self-sufficient, immutable, eternal God who alone possesses immortality and is so infinitely holy that if He were to pull back the veil and let you see into the core of who He is, you and all the rest of the universe would be incinerated. You would melt into a puddle of liquid nothingness because He is so pure beyond what our eyes can behold. This God, in love unspeakable, climbed out of His glorious position in heaven where He was adored and worshipped by all the angels and delighted in by His Father and mutually delighted in by the Holy Spirit. He came to rescue you from your own well-deserved damnation. He should have, if He were to be fair, consigned us all to hell. He hadn't done enough for you. Oh, Paul says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. You're going to let self crowd out the glorious Lord Jesus, the hymn writer Theodore Monod. Oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me. I beheld him bleeding on the accursed tree and my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day, His tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of Thee. Higher than the highest heaven, deeper than the deepest sea, Lord, Thy love hath conquered none of self and all of Thee. Oh, precious ones, here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us. His precious blood. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Paul saying, I was there. And he did that for me. Our debt was so great we couldn't pay it. Therefore, Jesus came with his infinite account of fullness and righteousness and paid the debt that we could not afford. That's what he did. But why did he do it? Can you dare to believe these three words? He loved me. That's why he gave himself up for you. That's his motive. It's not because we're lovely. It's not because we're loving. It's not because we're lovable. The Bible clearly says that before a person is justified before God through the blood of Jesus Christ alone, the Bible says we are haters of God. We are enemies of God. We are at enmity with God. He didn't love us because of anything in us. He loved us to make us lovely. He loved us to beautify us with the love of Christ because of his own great love for us. Ephesians 2. He saved us. Now, we're going to draw to a close. But I can't do it without making some very practical applications by way of simple questions. Questions like this. Do you mean to tell me that those of you who have not yet given your life to Jesus Christ, that if He came and took up residence in you, and He eradicated the old man, He put to death the old man, He raised you to spiritual life. Uh, Rick likes to say, what's in the well is going to come up in the bucket. Do, do you mean to tell me that 
if Christ is in you, it wouldn't be a John chapter 4 experience where wells of water gushing forth into eternal life. Do you mean to tell me that, that Jesus Christ wouldn't start to come out of your life and you'd want everything to be about Him? Friends, this is what the love of God does to a person. It makes you care less what anybody else thinks about you. And it makes you care altogether and thoroughly what God Almighty thinks about you. To be beautified with the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes the greatest attraction to your soul. To be met by Him in your times of sorrow and valley and challenges. To be able to trust Him and ask Him to truly change you and transform you into His likeness until one glorious day you see Him face to face. This is the gift of the Gospel. That God will give you His Son. Why did He do it? He loves you. Greater love has no man than this that He laid down His life for His friends. This will melt the mountain of your pride. This will bring you to your knees in holy adoration of the Son of God. It will turn you from a violent aggressor into a Jesus worshiper, Jesus lover. It will turn you into a person who loves not only the Lord Jesus, but His body and bride, the local church. You'll love those He loves. You'll seek to serve those He serves. And you'll seek to commend Him to all the world so that others, beggars for bread, can come and find their fill at the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will put a song so deep in your heart to the Lord of glory who stepped out of heaven to die as your substitute for your sins and not his own. And it'll conquer you so thoroughly and capture you so fully that you'll speak like the Bible speaks. When you see the love of Christ for you, you'll start to say things like the Bible says, the love of Christ controls me. The love of Christ controls me. 2 Corinthians 5, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that those of us who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. When you see the love of God in Christ for you, he changes you instantly. You erupt back to him in mutual love. Peter said, though you have not seen him, you love him. This is love. This is love, friends. Galatians 2.20 is love. Not that we loved God, John wrote, but that God loved us and sent His Son this way to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, I'll close here. Jesus, I am resting, resting. In the joy of what Thou art, I am finding out the greatness of Thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon Thee, and Thy beauty fills my soul. And by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. Oh, how great thy loving kindness. Vaster, broader than the sea. Oh, how marvelous thy goodness lavished all on me. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. There are a couple of to-dos that I think would be appropriate for this day in light of this message from this passage. The first is, write out your obituary. When did you die? We call it our testimony. I'm calling it your obituary. Paul said, I was crucified with Christ. Can you write that down? When did that happen to you? Have you been crucified with Christ? Write your obituary. Here lies Jordan Thomas. Union with Christ. I was crucified with Him. He's all my hope. He's my Lord. If you've never written out your own conversion experience, I encourage you to do it. And when you sit down to put pen to paper and you say, I don't have a testimony, and God brought you to such a wonderful place, 
and such a group of loving people who would love to help you know how you could also have the life of Christ within. If you've written your conversion story down and you've never shared it, young people, teenagers, write it down. Share it with your parents. Share it with somebody, adults in your small group. Share it with one of our pastors. And then, if Christ is in you, then on April 29th, there's no good reason we shouldn't have your funeral service at our baptism day. You can climb right down into the waters, signifying that the old you died, and now Christ is within you, and all your life is now for Him. That's what baptism represents, and we'll do that on April 29th. And if you want to be part of that, then no later than February the 18th, a few weeks from now, you need to be in our starting point and Foundation of Grace seminars. That's the first thing. Write your obituary, follow through, give all of you to all of Jesus. The second thing I would say is just marinate in Galatians 2.20. Marinate. I mean, ruminate, cogitate, steep a long time. Chew on this verse a lot. Marinate in this verse. Meditate. Pray through it. Think about it in the presence of God. Until your soul is on fire with inexpressible wonder at who Jesus is and what He's done for you and how His great heart yearns for you and loves you. And until the greatest ambition in your life is to live by faith in the Son of God who died for you because He loves you and lives within you from now until eternity. Marinate on this verse. And then, Lord willing, keep pulling the wrapper back and enjoying the gift of Christ. And God will take great delight as your soul is thrilled in Him. Join me as we pray together. Father, such a little and power-packed verse We've taken an effort to try to walk through it phrase by phrase, but we understand we've not even touched the hem of the garment of the wonder of who Christ is and all you've done for us in him. But I have a sense, Lord, that virtue has gone out from Jesus, like that lady who touched the hem of his garment. And I have a sense, Lord, that you've caused somebody today to be born again. And now Christ is within them. My prayer, God, is that you would prove the genuineness of that conversion, of that faith. And you would cause that person, those persons, to live upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I pray for us as a church, Lord, that you would cause us to walk in the way of Christ, leaning into the fullness and wonder of Jesus, truly walking with Him, not faking it, certainly not appealing to our own religious behavior as the ground for why you should accept us, but a faith that works, not working for our salvation, but from it, diligently pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ by faith together. And God, I ask you that you would cause our witness, individually and corporately, as we tell people about Jesus, point people to Christ, I ask that you would cause many to see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. 